Hello and welcome to In Unison, the podcast about new choral music and the conductors, composers, and choristers who create it. We are your hosts. I am Zane Fiala, Artistic Director of the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. And I'm Giacomo Di Gregoli, a tenor in IOCSF, the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And this is... In Unison! <laughs> I like being in unison! Hey everyone! Today's episode of In Unison continues our mini-series of discussions with composers to be featured on IOCSF's upcoming concert program, Freshly Squeezed. The performances will take place on December 4th in Berkeley and December 18th in San Francisco. For more information on those concerts, please visit iocsf.org. Our conversation today is with IOCSF alum Soren Ostenfeld about their composition, Sapphic Fragments, a set of mini-vignettes that Soren calls Meditations on Queer Histories and Imaginaries. One thing that isn't fragmented is our gratitude for the generous people who are helping to support the creation of this podcast. We couldn't have made it this far without our generous donors, so today we're giving a shout-out to two friends of the pod, Aaron Medlin and Adele Wilson. Thanks so much for the support. If you would like to help support In Unison, please visit inunisonpodcast.com slash donate. Okay, before we get into the conversation with Soren, let's start off with one of their compositions. Written for a friend's graduate recital in 2014, here is a setting of an Edna St. Vincent Millay poem entitled Daphne. us today on In Unison is IOCSF alum Soren Ostenfeld, a singer, teacher, music director, and researcher based in Boston, Massachusetts. The focus of their research includes transgender singers, especially singing through the testosterone voice change and the soprano whistle register. Current and recent performances include appearances with Opera on Tap Boston and Nightingale Vocal Ensemble, as well as the premiere of The Date, a one-act opera about queer and trans relationships by Quinn Gutman in Cambridge, Mass. Soren serves as music director at First Parish, a Unitarian Universalist congregation in Malden, Massachusetts, just north of Boston, and recent teaching and research include sessions with Makeshift, Boston's School of Arts and Social Justice, 
the Acoustic Vocal Pedagogy Online course through the New England Conservatory, and One Weird Trick, which is part of the Voice Lab. Soren is a graduate of the New England Conservatory with a master's in vocal pedagogy and Pomona College with a BA in music. Recently, Soren received the Best Poster Award at the Nats 2020 Virtual Conference for their poster, Acoustic Registration for Transgender Singers on Testosterone. In their free time, Soren enjoys songwriting and composing, vegetarian cooking, and spending quality time with their spouse, Jameson, and their two cats, Bat and Faith, and I believe we may hear one of them singing in the background at times. Soren, so great to have you here. Thanks for joining us on In Unison. It is great to be here with both of you. Hey, welcome. It's great to see you. I, we normally jump in immediately with an icebreaker, and we've got one of those. We're going to come up in a second. But I wanted to also celebrate a bit of serendipity because this is our 47th interview. And as I understand it, 47 actually has a bit of mysticism and magic for you, perhaps, or something. Tell us a little bit about the significance of the number 47, if you will. Um, so as, um, as Zane mentioned in my bio, um, I did my undergraduate degree at Pomona College um, in Southern California. And Pomona has a bit of a thing about the number 47. I think it started in the math department or somewhere else a few decades ago. Um, but there's this idea that 47 is a random number that crops up more often than other numbers. This may or may not be true, um, but it is a number that has made its way into a lot of Pomona gear, into a lot of mythology. Sometimes people drop the number 47 into pieces of media that they work on um, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, when... When um, Jameson and I moved into this apartment, we got two parking spots assigned to us that were spots 40 and 47, and so I immediately knew which one I was going to pick. Um, just little stuff like that that seems to follow us. Oh, wow, that's so clever. <laughs> A little I Easter love eggs to look for, yeah. Yeah, I love the little coincidences like that. Yeah, I, um, I am not well-versed enough in the Star Trek universe to tell you where it crops up, but there are some 47s that may or may not be placed or appearing somewhere in there as far as i know okay then <laughs> for all those trekkies out there uh maybe you can write into the show and tell us all about the number 47 <laughs> so here is your official icebreaker to let folks get to know you a little bit better and this is a fun one we actually chatted with brian lynn and gave him this one as well uh if you could be in the guinness book of world records what record-breaking feat would you attempt um, so this one would definitely have to be about weird cooking adventures in the kitchen. Um, I have always liked cooking, but it uh, reached new heights during the pandemic. Um, I'd always enjoyed trying new recipes, but I have just been continuously making up weirder and weirder mac and cheese recipes. <laughs> um, I got really into mac and cheese after getting the cookbook from Homeroom, which is the mac and cheese restaurant in Oakland uh, oh. when I lived there. And I have expanded at this point to things as absurd as kimchi fried rice mac and cheese. Mm, um, and like a smoky jalapeno mac and cheese. Um, so the I think that some either number or weirdness of mac and cheese innovations is probably what I have to offer the world. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would gladly be a uh, Guinness uh, 
accountant for that one. I will gladly test every recipe and make yeah. sure that it's... <laughs> That's a great one. Um, Soren, we're excited to chat with you today um, about your piece that will be premiering at Freshly Squeezed in our upcoming concert called Sapphic Fragments, Meditations on Queer Histories and Imaginaries. And we'll talk about the piece specifically in a moment. But one thing I'm always curious about, um, because folks have so many different backgrounds and so many different paths to becoming a composer. And the first question for you would be, when and why did you choose to become a composer? So my answer to that is already going to problematize the concept of being a composer. um, Because I'm not even sure that I think of myself as a composer all the time. I... I came to writing music because there has been stuff kicking around in my head for as long as I can remember that I want to figure out how to play or sing. And sometimes it's something that I've heard before and sometimes it's not. Um, But as someone who, you know, started, started on the piano really before I started formally doing any singing training, I still have always felt more connected to singing as that way of just generating expression organically. And so for me, songwriting and composition have started to become essentially the same thing. Um, When I did start writing music at the piano, I started writing songs when I was young and they were not particularly innovative or exciting songs. Um, But that sort of process of self-expression of the things that don't quite come out in any other medium and that specifically come at the nexus of language and music um, are really what moved me. I haven't done as much work really creating music that does not involve either setting words that I've written myself or words that others have written. Um, And so I guess I chose to think about composition as its own thing when I got to college and took some composition lessons and was left really just trying to figure out what balance of structure and pressure to be original was going to line up with my desire to kind of just get out the things that were stuck on the inside. Um, And in terms of what that looks like for me now, I feel like I've grown a lot as a composer from doing songwriting workshops and from working with um, songwriters like in the contemporary department at New England Conservatory, um, sort of collaborating to set up stuff for for a band and to write songs together. They, they really are one and the same for me. I, we hear a lot that the magic of composition is also sometimes the, the idea of handing over something you've written to other folks and, and seeing what they do with it. Do you remember that that first time that you uh, wrote something and handed it off or taught someone one of your pieces, what that felt like? So the first time was actually probably when I took an orchestration class at Pomona, and I did not do the greatest job in that orchestration class. I really went in wanting to learn how to write for instruments that I didn't play myself, especially string instruments and brass instruments, because I don't have a background in strings at all. Um, And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about what to write and what not to write. And some of that came from having assignments that were put um, in the hands of instrumentalists and they were supposed to play them and they played them. And then they looked at me (laughs) with a look 
<laughs> and I kind of looked at myself with that same look and it was a really humbling moment of like realizing that having an idea, even if it's a very good idea, is very different than putting it on the page in a way that someone else can create. Mm. Um, that was a moment when I realized sort of how much how much of composing was going to have to be making sure that everything was on the page so that someone else could figure out what I wanted. Because having the idea in my head and being able to explain it to myself or create it myself is not the same thing. Um, and that's continued to be like, that is the hardest thing for me about composing. It's not having an idea. It's scoring it so that someone else also knows what the idea is and replicates it in a way that matches what was in my head. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, we, we were just talking with Vince Peterson of Coral Chameleon, uh, yesterday. He happened to be in town here in the Bay area. So we were talking to him and, he had he has a lot of uh, thoughts about exactly what you're talking about. You know, the composers have these great, amazing ideas, but there's so much importance about behind how you communicate that to the performers, so that what you want ends up coming out of their mouths or out of their instruments. You know, and that there's there's a lot of importance to that, and it's a skill in and of itself. So that's that's a great point. You'd mentioned to us also beforehand that a lot of your work. Um, does involve sort of that personal connection between you and the the per performers that you're working with. Um, and so it's it sort of is a wonderful coincidence that we're chatting with you about this freshly squeezed program. It, you're an alum of IOCSF, and I think you've seen many opportunities where um, singers within the group have presented music. And um, do you think that your participation in any of those programs or uh, might have influenced your thoughts on the relationship between ensemble and composer. Like, how how did that particular experience or, or witnessing that in IOCSF maybe sort of color your impression of how to work between an ensemble and uh, and the conductor to to get your results? Thanks. That is a really rich question. I'm just going to make sure I get my thoughts in the order that I want them to be in for that. Um. So before I sang with IOCSF, I had really only worked with individual singers or small ensembles of individual singers and players on pieces of music. And that is a really wonderful compositional process in and of itself to collaborate with a specific singer on what might fit in their voice, what they might find personally expressive as well. Um, since then, I've had the opportunity also to be on the other end of that and to work with composers who have written for my voice in the way that it was at the time and the things that I was able to do with it and wanted to do with it. And choral writing is different, obviously, than solo writing. And it's a different experience for the ensemble and for the conductor because there's always a bit of... I think knowing what the forces are in the choir, but also knowing what type of process the choir is available to go through. Like, and that could involve number of rehearsals, that could involve um, the type of musician that the director is, the type of sort of hold that they have on gathering a lot of complex elements that are outside the scope of the individual singer and bringing them together. Um, and I actually think that when I, um, when I first took this piece um, in front of a group here in Boston, when I had freshly written it, 
I really had the experience that even though I had conducted before, I was a little bit out of my depth as a conductor for this specific piece, Sapphic Fragments, because I was so in it in all the little things, and it takes this big picture command of where things are coming from and going to bring the ensemble together, especially on a piece that has a lot of quick changes and moving parts like this one. Um, it gave me an understanding of the value that a conductor brings to a piece of music for a composer, um, whether it's a rehearsal conductor or a performance conductor, to get the macro level and the micro level in a balance that I just can't see from the inside as a composer. And so then like being able to step in with the ensemble after having support from another conductor, I was able to um, I was able to bring more to life with this piece. And I think that really changed my idea of what that collaboration would ideally look like for me as an artist. Well, since we are now talking about sapphic fragments, let's let's get into the micro of that a little bit more. But I wanted to start off with a little uh, short description of the piece from your own program notes, because we asked all of our composers to write program notes for their pieces for this program. Um, and so this is a short excerpt of that. And you wrote... Sapphic Fragments is a set of seven mini-vignettes standing on one another's shoulders in a trench coat, playing together as one piece of music. The text is drawn from open-source translations of Sappho's poetry, chosen specifically because these moments highlight the similarities between experiences of same-sex relationships in 600 BCE and the modern-day queer community. I love that description. It makes me so. As someone who is like uh, rehearsing this piece right now, the, the description of seven mini vignettes in a trench coat is so perfect and so hysterical. I mean, only structurally, like not when you actually get into like the the meaning of the piece. I mean, and there is some humor in it, which is fantastic. But I love that description. I think that's hysterical. Yeah, I just picture all seven movements standing on each other's shoulders in this giant trench coat. What that alludes to is a bit of that composer conductor relationship as well that that I mentioned which is that I originally just put together each little miniature phrase as its own musical entity I did not try to connect them consciously and I noticed as I was putting them together that I had used some techniques and some um, some structural elements that were similar among these pieces and that they did flow in a way that worked content-wise, that worked in terms of the language as well as the music um, and in that content. But they uh, they do feel, as the conductor, I think sometimes, as a bunch of little things that are definitely meant to go together, but it's a little tenuous. Um, and I, I know it can feel that way for the singers as well, because, you know, getting, um, getting from movement to movement without repitching, getting shifts, getting those little pauses in, um, it kind of feels for everyone involved, like there's a little bit of wobbling on one another's shoulders. Um, and at the same time, I think they work together as a message, you know, together they work as a story and a statement on 
on our community as a whole more so than as individuals. So it's kind of a good thing that they're in the trench coat, but they're a little wobbly. That's a good segue into talking maybe a little bit more about the texts themselves, these fragments of Sappho, the source texts of the piece. Um, how did you go about choosing those texts? And also, I, I just in that little bit of your program that, that I read, I noticed you said that you used open source translations. I'm sure there's a lot of those. How did you settle upon the actual translations you chose? Um, so I did a lot of Googling. Um, I located as many sort of free to use sources for translation as I could and ended up settling um, on the variations that felt the most like they would work for a musical idea in my head. Um, and so like some examples of, of that process of choice um, is that there's the movement that starts with the phrase virginity, where will you go when you have left me? It's a very funny little fragment. It's I, I wrote it to be a funny little dance. Um, but there are other translations that say virginity, where will you go when I lose you? Very different. Right. Very different. And And what I liked about that was that I could almost imagine this concept that is or is not real and sort of is both at the same time just running away as its own thing. <laughs> I, lo I love the idea of, of virginity being one of the like things in the trench coat just running away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just running. Just Where are you going? A, yeah. Making a bolt for it. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, we were just talking about the, the source text and where you found the translations, which uh, clearly the translation. We, we talked with Maria Isabel Valverde, um, who is a polyglot and a translator uh, herself. And, she, you know, she we talked a lot extensively about, whoa, you know, like the translations you choose and the people you work with tell a completely different story. And I think in this case, you've chosen some that are spot on to, I think, what you were intending in the pieces maybe yeah, also I, go ahead oh I, I was just gonna say i i wish that i could have done translations myself sadly not a language that i can translate from <laughs> um but i i really feel the same way um i did all of my own translations for um for my graduate recital that didn't happen during COVID, um, I was supposed to give a lecture recital in April of 2020, um, and our voice department ended up being unable to scale all of the things that we were trying to do on a short enough timeline to get those performances out. But I had already uh, prepared all my rep and done all my texts and translations, so I had a really fun time thinking about what verb tense to use and sort of what word to use. I um, I had a really enjoyable time coming up with just for fun, a poetic translation of, of, um, of a piece that I really liked that I sang in German and that stuff that just, it delights me. I, you're making me want to do more things that involve doing my own translations. So what what was it? Maybe we also should step back. I, I don't know that uh, everyone, I mean, I think most of the folks who are listening probably know some history about these pieces, but maybe you can tell us a bit more about the, the history and the sort of mythos uh, surrounding these fragments of Sappho and, and maybe tell a little bit more about why you chose to set these to music as well. Yeah, so um, 
So Sappho is generally very well known for having lived on the island of Lesbos, which is where the term lesbian comes from. Um, and also the term sapphic often comes from Sappho. Uh, she's well known for having written about same-sex romantic and sexual relationships or things that are interpreted pretty clearly that way in the modern day as we look back in any case. And there's there isn't always a lot of evidence that far back of stuff like that um, for for the queer community at all. And, you know, it it is a, a popular topic to look back at Sappho specifically in the queer community. But the thing that struck me when I started looking at these fragments was also that it reminded me so much of things like that just occur in our lives today as well. And I think that, you know, there are there are components of all these poems that are not specific to queer people and queer relationships and community either. You know, there is a certain universal timeless feeling to a lot of these fragments, but the thing that grabbed me and the thing that made this feel like a statement about sort of memory and imagination and history, especially for the queer community, is the first movement starts with remembering those things we did in our youth. And then the piece closes with, I tell you, someone will remember us in the future. And that idea of intergenerational memory and connection, that idea that there have always been people having all kinds of relationships and genders and communities for a very, very long time. And that that also like persists into the future and that we will not be lost is still a really powerful thing to say. Um, I've thought about that even more since, um, since sort of coming, coming a little further since I wrote this piece in 2017 or 2018, towards really like identifying and being out as a trans person um and since experiencing firsthand things that we know happen to the trans community a lot this idea of oh this is a new thing this hasn't been around before like why now why this people didn't used to behave this way or need these things and just looking back at all of the erasure of queerness, um, both in gender and sexuality over a large portion of history, it feels really powerful to just make a statement that there has always been something and that it has been continuous and that whether or not it is, you know, always acknowledged or known to everyone um, doesn't change that fact. This was especially meaningful because I, I first, um, worked on this piece here in Boston with an ensemble specifically of all queer singers in the LGBTQ plus community. And it makes just a really strong statement to say like, we have been here and we will continue to be here. And that that is a really emotional topic um, that especially in the context of music I noticed really brought up a lot of feelings for a lot of folks that I was working with on this piece. We're going to get into uh, a little bit more about 
many of the topics that you just uh, brought up in a moment. But before we do that, I wanted to talk real quick just about Movement One. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, and you have you know, a singer on the line who is yes, that's really Jacques enjoying Jacques that. Jacques is, is working on singing this piece. And I personally, obviously, as I'm conducting this piece, I've gone through the entire composition and sung every part. To, yes. to, to learn the piece. You know, that's some, one of the things we do as choral conductors. We have to be able to sing everything. And when I first presented this composition to the singers of IOCSF, and I said it in front of them, I said, what's uh, the first thing you notice here? <laughs> and a couple of people in the choir actually audibly gasped as they realized that <laughs> the treble voices are written in the key of B major, and the lower voices, the tenors and basses, are written in the key of B-flat major simultaneously. And they, of course, they pass the music back and forth, and they don't sing at the same time a lot. But it's this really interesting juxtaposition of two keys that could not be more distantly related. Because they're <laughs> literally a half step away from each other. One with many sharps and one with two flats. What... Can you tell us a bit about this choice to write music in two key signatures simultaneously that are very distant and they are they fight with each other real hard tooth and yes nail. yes they fight with each other and I I did make the writing antiphonal on purpose because I didn't want them to be crunching on top of each other all the time the feeling. The feeling is the feeling of an echo. It is the feeling of trying to resolve mm. the memory into something clear and something specific. And um, specifically the choice for the sharp key to be in the upper voices and the flat key to be in the lower voices is because it's, it's very hard in the context of this piece, but it is easy sort of perceptually as a singer for things that are lower to drift a little flat and things that are higher to drift a little sharp. And it felt like an opportunity to stretch that divide further than it would go in any ensemble of singers trying to sing in tune and make the arrival where these singers all arrive together in B flat at the end really satisfying. Um, but it, it was really this feeling of echo, this feeling that you can't quite put your finger on it at first, and it's palpably distressing to not be able to put your finger on it. That's really interesting. You know, I, I, I like to use the phrase, memory is fallible. I say that a lot, because we, we think, as humans, we believe that if I remember that, I remember that. And, if, and what I remember is exactly how it happened. And actually, that's not true. We, we don't remember things very well. That humans just don't. We just don't. Um, but we think we do. And so I think that's an interesting point about this. These two keys, we're talking about remembering. It's an ensemble. It's a group of people clearly kind of trying to remember the same thing simultaneously. But those memories are just slightly different. And trying to find a way for them to to come together and resolve at the end to B flat major, and it is very satisfying because it's crunch crunch B flat against B natural for a whole measure, and then it resolves to B flat major, and it feels like okay, we finally found some common ground. Yeah, and I have to say too that that half step dissonance, I just love a good half step dissonance. Having sung 
second soprano on enough contemporary <laughs> choral music where like crunching right there up against someone who's just a step away from you is really, really satisfying <laughs> and always brought me a lot of joy. And I, that joy is actually what motivated that crunch right there coming into the resolution at the end was that for me, it seems really fun. I hope it's fun for other people. <laughs> I am so grateful grateful for this conversation because that that thought, the idea of the the echo, hadn't really occurred to me. And now I'm sort of thinking of it as this sort of like memory Doppler shift, that it's like as time sort of goes on, things dilate in this strange and interesting way. I'm going to put that in my little memory bank. That's going to, we'll have to let people know at IOC. You're going to get a little extra flavor in that. I think that's great. That is that Doppler shift. That's a wonderful way to describe it. I would not have used that term, but it's so correct. Yeah, that's really excellent. We did just rehearse the piece last night uh, and we ran it through from beginning to end uh, after working it through from beginning to end. Um, and so uh, we, we don't get to repitch between movements. Is that, did I hear you say that? <laughs> I heard that. I heard that. And I, well, okay. So I, um, one could one could repitch between movements, but it's been done without repitching. Oh, so, the gauntlet has been thrown. That's I all I have to say. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Soren, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, when you were writing this piece, uh, and then just in general, your your compositional styling. I want to talk a little bit about voicing voice parts and sort of this notion of gendered voicing in general. You wrote this piece in a traditional SATB choral style or something I would pick up and note that I think was written for SATB. As an expert in voice for all genders and no genders, in fact, that's the title of a talk you recently gave with Makeshift Boston, which is focused on empowering individual singers centered on trans voices specifically. What are your thoughts of composing within that structure what was traditionally considered female, you know, soprano, alto, and male tenor-based voice parts? Um, Or said another way, what the heck, what what do we mean when we apply these labels? What's a soprano? What's a tenor? And do we still need them? So um, I, I have to start by saying that I have been really impressed by a lot of my colleagues in choral pedagogy. I think it's now become the norm to refer to choral voice parts by the part that the person is singing and not by the presumed gender of the group of people. So people might say sopranos and altos, tenors and basses, rather than women or men, um, which honestly is reasonable even when you don't think about trans people because people sing all kinds of things all the time. Um, And so for me, like I think about the parts and the descriptor of soprano, alto, tenor, bass, or anything else as descriptions of generally what the vocal demands for that line of music are. Um, Especially in four-part writing, that might also just connote a position or a style of movement in four-part harmony. Um, Like, you know, we think about something like a Bach chorale, and there are definitely some extensions of range that might be challenging for some singers defined as tenors, basses, anything else in those styles. But what what we're really looking at and what I was looking at with this writing was just that those words are fine to describe the role that the singer plays in the ensemble. Um, it reminds me 
a lot of how um, sort of in the in the classical singing world, we've also started to deconstruct the Fox system a little bit and think about where it started rather than where it is now, which was essentially as a system to classify the demands of opera roles on individual singers and for singers to be able to choose a category that felt sustainable for them and would not stretch them to do things that were not sustainable for multiple performances um, over a longer period of time. And so I think of, I really think of these voice types, whether it's for solo writing or for choral writing as just descriptions of the demands for the singer and that singer self-labeling with a voice type is then just a tool to indicate to others what suite of vocal demands they are most prepared to meet. Um, what that looked like, what that looks like for a lot of people is that there are a lot of sopranos who sing alto on things, but who still for solo work or for um for other gigs might still build themselves as a soprano because that's the repertoire that works and then they opt in to do work in a section as an alto or perhaps occasional solos as an alto sort of as an exception to what their default is um i see the same thing right now for myself i have access to a decent amount of head mix and sort of tenor or treble range, but I would only sign up to sing the bass part in a choral ensemble because that is the only thing I can consistently for two hours of rehearsal or three hours of rehearsal cover without fatiguing. Um, and it really brings us to the fact that what someone's actual range is what the just number of pitches they can physically produce is, is very different from what's sustainable, comfortable, and allows artistic expression for that person. And that also neither one of those things is really correlated to sex or gender at the end of the day. Um, maybe that answers some questions. <laughs> it does. No, I think in particular, I think what you're uh, honing in on and what's interesting, I think as a composer, I'm not one myself, but is this notion that you start with the voices. You, what do you have? What are you writing towards? I mean, you, I think it's very interesting. Uh, it makes the world of commissioning pieces much more interesting, right? Like the process of a composer. I mean, it sounds like one of the things that's that's valuable, interesting is who are you writing for? What's the what's the choir? What's their level of skill? What's their voice range? How many singers do you have? I think if you start with that, everything else just sort of fits in from the compositional perspective of saying, well, these people are capable of this. I can write within this range. You know, do you have, um, you know, singers who are capable of more or less and then writing against that seems more valuable than just sometimes saying, I mean, you certainly can. You can start with a fresh sheet of paper and say, I've got an idea. What ensemble can can sing this? And which is another interesting way of, of uh, thinking about that. Do you do that? It sounds like you have done that with some of your ensembles or some of the folks that you write for, that you write for a voice or you have thought about or have a specific ensemble in mind. Have you been able to do that? Yeah, um, I think what, what that really brings up um, is an issue that faces a lot of composers and that then also begins to face choir directors, which is how many Divisi can you do on a part without things starting to get thin? And that is not even necessarily about skill of singers, but also about the texture that you get a better blend when there are multiple singers on each part 
even when you're also dividing these singers, you still probably want multiple people on a lot of those because 12 parts stacked on top of one another is going to feel very different with one person on each versus two. Um, and so what that, what that opens up for the composer is questions about like, what do I want the texture of this piece to be? Do I want to have a lot of divisions? Do I want to make sure that I have few enough parts that there can be a bunch of people on each part holding this sound together, whether that's an issue of um, blend or of skill level or of the type of sound desired. Um, and I have been really fortunate to mostly know at least where the first home of things that I'm writing is going to be so that I can try to make sure that the things that I want in my head will come out in some sonic form that approximates the way that they were um, on the inside of my ear. And something that motivated me to connect with IOCSF about this piece that was sort of waiting for its thing, for its next thing, um, was that I really imagined that this ensemble would be a great fit for it. Um, and that I would not have wanted to send Zane a piece that I thought would not suit IOC. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if I had thought that this piece would not, I probably would have either tried to write something else or waited it out for another season, <laughs> tried to come up with something else that would have, um, that would have better suited. Uh, how, did you revise it much between its first performances and when you submitted it to IOC? I did. Um, I revised it a bit. I was able to add a lot more clarity about what I actually wanted in terms of tempo and dynamics, especially having um, played with a lot of options with actual humans in the room and figured out what felt good and what didn't feel good with other people rather than just me waving my hands and singing and imagining what would happen. Um, it's a very different feel in a space than with a group. And also I was, I was able to add a, some changes in the texture, actually specifically for IOC, because I knew what forces would be available. Um, it was, I, I wrote for um, a somewhat smaller ensemble and one that tended to have more singers on individual parts. And so I was able to stretch things out and add, add some texture in a way that um, I knew would suit this ensemble, which, which was really fun and a really great opportunity. Well, it's going well so far. We're enjoying it. At least I'm enjoying it. The singers are still challenged. I'm loving it. I absolutely, I, th I mean, I think most of us looking around are like, this is definitely an interesting challenge. There's parts of it which are challenging, but there's parts of it which are mind-blowing and really fun and exciting. And the text is great to dig into, and it feels like something that's, yeah, we're excited to present it. Putting a smile on my face with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Soren, I was just going to ask if there was anything in particular that you wanted to make sure that we covered because we're we're rounding up to an hour and we're going to get into the part where we, you know, Talk look forward and ask for projects. plugs yeah, and things exactly. like that. Was there anything else you <laughs> wanted to say about the piece or your compositional journey or anything else? Yeah, um, something that I was thinking about before this interview and that I'm thinking about again since you mentioned the singer's experience of what is fun and challenging. Giacomo specifically, um, something I didn't bring up when I was talking about 
starting to compose and starting to write music is that the fact that everything comes very sort of melodically generated for me and like that things feel very much like they are ready to be sung when they come into my head has motivated some of my instrumental writing as well. Like when I write for a voice and an instrument together, I really like to do counter melodies even more than just choral or chordal writing, excuse me, counter melodies more so than chordal writing. A diversion from that is that I really don't actually like writing for piano, which is frustrating because I have played the piano for so many years. <laughs> but, um, but what that comes to in this piece is that there are these really sort of lush homophonic moments, but there are also moments where the voices sort of chase each other around and there's a bit of sort of melodic interaction and even melodic chaos between the voices. And that that, just like that, you know, B flat, B natural crunch really comes out of a sense of joy in the conviction of doing that rather than just a desire to make things hard for the singers. Um, it, it's very important for me as a composer to, um, to do things that I at least imagine might be fun to sing rather, rather than just for the sake of a technical challenge. Um, and I, you know, I hope that maybe that's the, the vibe and the idea that, that can carry through, especially as folks start to feel more secure in those transitions and those moments and those lines. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, very, it's very melodic and it's very singable and, and there are harmonic moments where it's very crunchy and, and dissonant in ways, but at the same time, each individual line, like I said, I went through and sang every line and it's like, yeah, every line is very singable. It's a matter of like, okay, how does my line work with this line next to it? And, mm-hmm. and sometimes it doesn't quite work because that's kind of the point. And, but it's it is singable. Well, yeah, and I I I wrote them. I I sang every line as I wrote it. Clearly, as well, and they um they really are very individual. It's um I'm I'm not going to put myself on a funky historic pedestal and try to say that I have anything in common with you know Jesualdo or anyone else. But I I think that um. I, I do really come to this type of writing with the polyphonic approach and the idea that if the individual line is secure and fun for the singer and and connected, that the things that are crunchy in the ensemble will be good crunchy and not miserable crunchy. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, you've got you've got some fun. I mean, honey in particular, that first soprano line neither for me the honey like that the other stuff just chasing around everywhere yes that is fun it was fun i have to say though <laughs> particularly delightful to be a tenor and watching the sopranos go through that line was really fun <laughs> right and i um, i i also um my um my admission of guilt here is that i have always had a voice that moves and hops around and like that that is always my strong suit is like fioritura always has been and always will be the sustained like big sort of lyric voice stuff is is the challenge for me and so i love writing these sort of disjointed dancey things because that's what brings me joy and i recognize that that's not everyone's joy but i i hope they come to to find some pleasure <laughs> every in that. other soprano is just shaking their fists <laughs> in the, in the air. 
It's good. It'll um, it'll it'll get them ready to sing Rejoice Greatly and make two hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> tis tis the season. Tis the yes. season. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm giving myself away a little bit. I've uh, I've started working on the bass arias from Messiah because oh. I figure that's that's a good as good a starting point as any for how to get back out there. Cool yeah, in the solo you. landscape. <laughs> Fantastic. Shall we look forward, Giacomo? Let's do it, Soren. Uh, let's uh, looking forward here. Uh, what projects are you working on that you're that you can share with us that you're excited about? What's what's upcoming for you? Um, honestly, what's upcoming for me is, um, the, the fun part of getting my voice really reconfigured to a new fach. Um, I am starting to see a point in my voice change from soprano to unspecified baritone bass thing that it is currently feel a lot more secure and settled and flexible than it has for most of the last year as that change has been ongoing. I did some gigs this past year and they went well, which is honestly a bit of a miracle because that kind of thing is so unpredictable. Um, But what I'm actually doing is taking a little bit of a performance hiatus apart from leading music on Sunday mornings at my church to really work in some sustainable habits and freedom in this, in this new fach. Um, I have another concert um, with Nightingale Vocal Ensemble, which I started singing with this past spring, um, coming up this next spring. Um, we have, we have a season with a couple more concerts coming up here in Boston, but I am, I'm joining back for performance, um, later in the spring. And other than that, I'm honestly probably going to be dabbling in production for the first time. I've been doing some more songwriting that I've been holding a little close to my chest for the most part this year. That's feeling... It's feeling really good and I've never really like recorded and produced stuff at home before. So that's, that's a new thing I'm trying. I don't, I don't have any, any big breaks or any big upcoming gigs to share because I'm really in a a growing year. Are there uh, locations online where we can direct our audience to find you and find more information about your music, your performances, your compositions, et cetera? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. I have, um, I have not debuted a new website yet. That's another part of the, the growing year time and sort of getting, getting the lay of the land of where I'd like to take myself next, especially as a singer. I am pretty active on Instagram, but mostly with the cooking pictures and the cat pictures, um, with a smattering of vocal pedagogy and gig announcements. Um, my Instagram handle is Soren Sings. S-O-R-E-N, the word sings, uh, no punctuation. And other than that, I, um, I'm on Facebook, but I don't use it a lot. So I'm really a little bit, little bit withdrawn from all the promotion. I don't actually have that much to promo at the moment. And you've been teaching uh, vocal lessons online as well? Yes. Yes, I, um, I do teach online. I... Um, I'm a teacher at the Voice Lab, which is a um, gender affirming and trans affirming studio um, with an online presence based out of Chicago. Um, and I offer lessons there alongside a, a large number of other teachers. 
And I also have a private studio here in Boston um, through the teaching collective that I'm a part of here called Whole Tone Music Academy. And those those lessons have also primarily been remaining online as we try to figure out what this whole world is going to look like um, moving forward and what spaces look like. But yeah, it's um, teaching has has really been a great joy for me during this year when there hasn't been as much in person singing. Um, I really love connecting with folks right where they are um, in their voice journey. It was a major motivator for me to go get my master's in vocal pedagogy because I've wanted to do that for a long time and having the tools and the resources to do so in a way that really supports people is is such a gratifying experience for me. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, we'll definitely put links to uh, those studios and um, and other places where people can seek you out to uh, find expertise from you to uh, help them adjust to their voices in whatever way they may need to. Well, Soren, it's been so wonderful having you on the show. Thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts about not only this composition, but just this idea about how we look at voices and voice parts and singing in general. It's just been really, for me, it's been really fascinating. It's something I'm always looking to learn more about. So, you know, thank you so much for your time. And and we really appreciate talking to you. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to reconnect and to be able to talk about all these things. And we miss you. I assume we do. You we so miss much. you. And what I, I will be there. I will be there in December. Yay! It's official. Yay! <laughs> We're so excited to see you. That's going to be great. That's going to be great. well. It's an honor to have you on the show, but it is equally an honor to sing your music and to be able to bring it to life. So thank you so much. What a compliment. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go ahead and finish off today's episode with a song Soren wrote this past year that gives us a taste of their singing voice as well as their compositional voice in more of a pop style. Here is Garden.
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. Musica Ficta Accidentals checked by Chorus Dolores, who will call Robert Hollingworth and the Ficta police if you screw up those accidentals again. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.